0: it's that time of the week again it's time for chit chat across the pond this is episode number 489 for may 29th 2017 and i'm your host allison sheridan well on tom merritt's daily tech news show a while ago he mentioned an article about how the oak ridge national laboratory had developed an ultrasonic clothes dryer that would eliminate the need for using heat to dry your clothes that was really cool so i tweeted the article I got a response back from a NoCilla castaway, Bruce Wilson, who just happens to be the Chief Technology Officer for Information Technology at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. We chatted a bit, and I thought he'd be a great guest for an episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. Welcome to the show, Bruce.
1: Thanks a lot. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Yay, this is going to be fun. So we're going to bounce around a couple of different things here. It's going to be fun to talk about the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. What's, What's the short way of saying that?
1: So Oak Ridge National Lab is one of the 17 national labs that's run by the U.S. Department of Energy, where you have about 5,000 staff members. About half of those are scientists or engineers. We're located just outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. We started as part of the Manhattan Project. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, Interesting. This was one of the secret cities during World War II, um, but we don't do anything with nuclear weapons. Uh, what, was, at Oak Ridge. what was
0: one of the secret cities? You mean Knoxville was, or Oak Ridge? Oak Ridge. Los oh. Alamos
1: was the other. Oh, so if, okay. if you go to either one of those cities, you'll you'll see some of the museums that talked about the. Um, the way it was protected and people could only come in and out. There are actually some of the residual guard gates, particularly on the west side of the town of Oak Ridge itself. And, and where is, is Oak Ridge? Just outside of Knoxville.
0: Oh, it is. Okay. Okay. Wow. I didn't know that. So, so, I, uh, so it was part of the Manhattan Project to start with?
1: It was, and then we've evolved from there. So Oak Ridge is the largest of what's called the Office of Science National Laboratories, and we do a, a very broad range of things. We work on things related to energy and security, but that includes material science. It includes computational sciences. We have the third largest um, supercomputer in the world at the moment. The oh, first wow. two happen to be in China. We used to have number one, but the, the Chinese hold that one at the moment. And that's <laughs> so you have the biggest wh-
0: in the U.S. then?
1: We do. We're, we're the largest open supercomputing facility in the world. And that's an example of what we do is the Department of Energy puts what's called the Oak Ridge Leadership computing facility here and we run and manage those supercomputers and then scientists submit proposals to get time to work on them um and to get help from us for how to take their simulation code and make it work just because it runs on your workstation doesn't mean that it'll scale up to a supercomputer
0: so i i gotta ask what is this supercomputer
1: uh it's called titan
0: and but i mean what is it is it something you guys built
1: it is a joint project um, involving a number of companies, um, for example, Intel. It's been designed by a number of computer scientists. This uses primarily GPUs um, to be massively parallel. Okay. So it's got thousands and thousands of processors, and that's part of how you get there. Is it, You make them as fast as you can, and then you put as many of them together, and it's you know the serious version of multitasking.
0: So not commercial off the shelf then, I'm guessing here.
1: No, not commercial off the shelf.
0: (laughs) No part number on that. Well, part of what was interesting to me was uh, what Oak Ridge actually does and how you fit into that because you didn't start out where you ended up. And I think your story is pretty interesting. Why Why don't you talk us through how you got to where you are inside Oak Ridge?
1: So, we we have this weird genetic problem in my family. Both <laughs> of my parents are PhD chemists. Uh, I have a PhD in chemistry, and so does my son. Oh, wow. My brother's weird. He's His doctorate's in history, but, you know, we keep him anyways. Dark
0: black sheep of the family, as they say, huh? Exactly.
1: Exactly. <laughs> um, so I got started in on chemistry very, very early on, um, but I also started in on computers early on. My dad was a professor, um, or at least at that point in his career. So if you hearken way back, there were these things called teletypes, and you dialed the phone number for the campus computer on the rotary dial phone, <laughs> and then you put that into the, the black rubber cup things, an acoustic coupler, and you could type at 110 baud on the teletype. And and I, that's how I learned how to program. And I was very, very lucky to be able to do that when I was 10, 11, 12, um, and just kept going on from there. I learned. Okay, to hang, do...
0: hang on. So let's see. I, I haven't converted BOD to megabits in a really long time. So, how do you get from BOD to bits?
1: Do you know the conversion? Uh, I'd have to go dig that one up. Okay, I'll the, go
0: look it up. But I, I, I know those, those
1: U.S. robotic modems were really cool because they could go to fifty-four hundred baud.
0: Yeah, that's about when I got into uh, into actually using a a, a modem. But uh, so okay, a <laughs> hundred and ten. Could yeah. you type faster than the uh oh, yeah. than the baud baud yeah. rate was? Yep. So you had to slow down for the teletype. You, you had
1: to slow down and wait for it to catch up. <laughs> So your dad didn't make you use punch cards then? I did that later. I did learn how to program um, in college, um, Fortran on punch cards. Nice. And Fortran I have the, 4 with Watt
0: 5, baby, huh?
1: Yep, and I have <laughs> dropped my deck.
0: Okay, and that's when you started numbering them.
1: <laughs> and that's exactly when you started numbering them. I was doing programming on a PDP-1140.
0: Ooh, um, I started on a PDP-1170.
1: Yeah, and I had an RKO 5 five-megabyte hard drive that was all mine. <sighs> wow.
0: You know, Tim the Toolman, Taylor, ar, 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 ar. <laughs> that's good exactly. stuff.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and then I moved to to, to to Microvaxes for my graduate work. But I've always been at this interface between computers and chemistry and statistics, really, the interface of all three of those. Oh, I just um, noticed
0: in your notes, you said uh, you went to Michigan State. My dad and my brother went to Michigan State. I did. We're like we're like brothers from another mother here. Except for the whole chemistry part.
1: <laughs> and and part of my brag on them and one of the things that was great, they gave me a scholarship and they said, you know, we're not going to give you the big fancy one, but here's this scholarship where you can go find any professor that will take you on campus and you can work for that professor for twenty hours a week and we'll pay your salary. The professor gets you for free. Oh wow. So that was a great start um, for me, and I got so to So, what
0: did you choose? Did you choose chemistry or or computer science? Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I worked for a fellow by the name of Chris Enke. He was um, one of the forerunners in something called mass spectrometry, um, and I was writing computer programs to simulate how ions would behave in something called a triple quadrupole mass spectrometer.
0: Wow. which that just rolls right off the tongue.
1: It does, but it's a way of analyzing chemicals. So it's part of the discipline of what's called analytical chemistry. How do you measure and understand what something is?
0: I did actually do some of that mass spectrometry in in if I pronounced it correctly in a yep. in a lab. I do remember doing that looking at the little uh at the little graph basically of right. of of the the chemicals.
1: That's that's cool stuff. I mean, basically, the way mass spec works is you take chemical molecules, you whack them, and you see how they break, and the way they break tells you the patterns for what the molecules are.
0: Ah, okay. So
1: you you graduate with a degree in chemistry and mathematics. Oh wow! Okay. And then so, um, Dr. Anke was advising me, and he said, "Here's some people you should go." Um, take a look at. And I really fell in love with the University of Washington and a fellow by the name of Bruce Kowalski. So I worked for Bruce as a graduate student. Um, Bruce Kowalski was one of the founders of a discipline called chemometrics. You might have heard of econometrics and a few other things, but it's the application of math and statistical methods to chemistry and chemical data. Hmm. And also, heavy programming involved, and so that's another place where I was doing is trying to understand my, – my thesis is one of these things that six people have read it, and two of them are my parents, and one of them is my wife.
0: <laughs> so you can't even get your son to read it?
1: I've, I've thrown – but it, it fundamentally says, here's an interesting technology that will never actually work in the real world. <laughs> Okay, that is the sum total of what that, what that three years of research did for me. <laughs> but chemistry is one of those fields where the initials that you have after your name make a big difference.
0: Oh, because and once so, you've got it, now that opens doors?
1: It does. And people will um, – the whole thing about a doctorate is it's supposed to be teaching you how to do research and how to learn – about something that maybe doesn't yet exist. And so if you want to get anywhere in chemistry, and certainly if you want to get anywhere in academia, which I thought I did, you have to have the PhD. So I just went through um, doing that. But I came out of graduate school with two children. um, And then I took a look and said, hmm, I could go work in industry, and they're going to pay me twice what I would get for a postdoc. Uh-huh. That salary sounded real good. So um, I went into industry. I went to work for what was then a division of Eastman Kodak. Oh, okay. um, it's now called Eastman Chemical Company. It's yeah, up in, all,
0: they were all about the, chem- the uh, chemicals, right? Right.
1: It got started because um, Kodak needed methanol. And so you got methanol by distilling wood, which they got from the mountains of East Tennessee. <laughs> and they spread out from there. A lot of film um, was made from something called cellulose acetate. Cellulose as in wood. Well, again, you got this raw material that was left over. It's also why Eastman Kodak actually held an original patent for the charcoal briquette. It was oh, a byproduct really? of making methanol.
0: So you take wood because uh, it has cellulose in it and, and burn it and you end up with charcoal briquettes
1: that partially when you get the methanol out? But you distill out the methanol. That's why methanol is called wood alcohol. Uh-huh. And ethanol, that we'll talk about a little later, is grain alcohol.
0: Also from the, the, the hills of Tennessee, right?
1: Mm, we might get our corn from a jar. At least that's where a that particular song goes.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: So I was doing a lot of math work, and I, was, I got into this business. We were learning how to do something called high-throughput research. And that let us make 100 samples where we might only have made one or two samples before. And that generated huge volumes of data. So I was making these tools to work with my own data. And then others saw what I was doing and I kind of branched out and I started making tools for other scientists to work Ah. with all of this data that we were generating. Um, Along the way, I went and left Eastman, or Eastman left me, um, December sixth, nineteen 1999 at 9.10 in the morning. Uh, I was <laughs> informed that my services were no longer required. Heck. I haven't forgotten that at all. <laughs> Not nope, bitter? Mm, no, no. I think it, there are interesting things that have come out of all of that. And people at the time made the right decisions, and there are some other things that I might have done differently. But you got to live the life you got. Yeah. So I went to go work for a company called the Dow Chemical Company, little bitty thing, um, up in Midland, Michigan, and did even more of that. With I was actually in a group of people that our job was to build the IT systems to support research scientists, particularly those working in catalysis, material sciences, and formulations. Um, huh. Michigan is a nice place, but it's a little cold. <laughs> and actually mid-Michigan, believe it or not, gets about the same amount of sun as Seattle.
0: Oh wow. I actually uh was born in Detroit. Tell me so, we're practically related. Except yeah, for the chemistry up, part.
1: Except for the chemistry part about it. And and I can't quite relate to the, your uh, musical Anhedonia, but that's okay. <laughs> um, so um I left um, Michigan – or I decided I was going to leave Michigan, leave the chemical industry, and I found a, a posting for a job at Oak Ridge, and they wanted somebody to do IT for climate scientists and ecologists. Well, I've had about as much climate science and ecology in my history as you've had chemistry.
0: But they make a lot of data.
1: But they make a lot of data. Oh, my goodness, do they make a lot of data. So I, I came down to Oak Ridge National Lab, and I started here in 2006. And I was working, interestingly enough, primarily in a data center for NASA. It's their um, what's called Distributed Active Archive Center for Biogeochemical Dynamics, which is a short way of saying ecology in particular. And it's one of the places where they store... So-called ground truth data that's used to calibrate some of the Earth observing system satellites,
0: and that's and, what, and the Earth observing system satellites is what they use in order to generate the the uh, the data about the environment.
1: Yeah, that's one of the tools okay. that's used for a variety of different things. Like um, MODIS is used. Um, For measuring vegetation, we learn a lot of things from MODIS, among other things. That's one of the places that they get some information about deforestation. It's one of the things that they get pieces for models that relate to ecosystems or global climate models. Um, There are other satellites that measure things like snow cover, um, the amount of ice. Uh, That's one of the places where we tell how much ice there is in the Arctic. It's all from satellite measurements,
0: Right, right. So now you're really branching away from doing the chemistry yourself and more into the helping chemists by building tools for them to be able to do their work,
1: right? Right. And then um, by 2010, we got a new chief information officer at at Oak Ridge. And um, Mike really wanted a scientist as part of his leadership team. And I was kind of interested. So in early 2011, I went a step further to do I.T. for all of the kinds of science that we do at Oak Ridge, and I've moved around into a couple of positions, and then this past March, um, we changed my title a little bit, and so I have this role as a, a CTO, Chief Technology Officer for I.T., I don't get involved with how the scientists do their science, but my job is how do we build the systems and make it easier for scientists to do science to make it so that they can do some of the things that they're trying to, particularly at an Oak Ridge where we're really trying to tackle some of the most complicated problems that are out there.
0: Okay, okay. That's um, that's a pretty interesting career bend. It sounds like it was kind of a, a slow bend as you went through these different careers, but you still get to keep your hands in understanding the science of what
1: they're trying to do, or I well, I do in the sense of it's sometimes necessary to understand the problems and what they're trying to accomplish. But I also do because you what frankly, problem they're trying to fun. solve? Yeah, <laughs> that would be one of your catchphrases. Yes, I've stolen that a time or two.
0: Oh, good! Everybody can use it. You don't even have to say trademark Alison Sheridan.
1: Right, CC zero. <laughs> So – oh, go ahead. And then one of the things that also attracted me to what you do and, and one of the reasons I've been listening to your show for a long time is surprisingly enough, science, particularly open science, actually has a significant Apple – I might even say bias. <laughs> and so I was at a meeting not too long ago with about 45 scientists. There was one Windows computer in the room. Wow. Um, and the rest were all Mac or Linux interesting interesting
0: and and they all have a choice of what to bring of their own nobody makes them use anything in particular
1: um the ones that use windows are the ones that that, not completely true but in a lot of meetings the people who have windows are ones that don't have as much choice as some others and it, it is harder for an enterprise to manage the Macs um and make sure that everything works across all of them. You know, you have enough of a challenge trying to make sure that stuff works on all of your Macs. Now imagine trying to make sure that something is working across 2000 Macs.
0: Yeah, and they don't have the, the tools as well evolved as they do on Windows, right? Right. I mean, there's some stuff, but it's not, it's not to the level of what you can do. Exactly. Okay. So, so, so it, you start to say the reason you like the No NoSilicast is what is it you
1: learn from us? Part of it is I listen to what are the challenges that people encounter. Um, how do you explain or how do other people explain what it is that they're trying to do? What problem they're trying to solve? You know, what's, what's the cool toys that somebody's talking about? How does that relate? Um, you know, there's a whole family of such things. And I can't say necessarily where I picked up any one particular thing. Uh, but you're an engineer, so you're a technical person but you approach things differently than an IT person would. Oh,
0: I take that as a compliment. It is. <laughs> I because was in I IT
1: for the last to... few years,
0: and I just it never felt right. It never felt like the, they understood.
1: And part of my job is how to learn to talk to different kinds of people and listen to what they're saying. Hmm. So I listen to a fairly broad range of podcasts, netcasts, To learn what is it that people are talking about? How do they explain something? Is that something that I can use in trying to explain a concept to somebody else?
0: The biggest thing I had trouble with understanding how to talk to the IT people was they saw the engineering workstations and the support of engineers as being just like supporting somebody who was in supply chain or somebody who was in legal desktop PCs versus what is an engineer trying to accomplish? And they didn't they didn't get it. They, they 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 just could not understand that it's different. That you have to allow flexibility in order to allow people to to create the crazy things we were trying to create.
1: Yep, and and now add to that 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 my customer base includes twenty five hundred scientists who are trying to do things that nobody's ever done before.
0: Right, right. I mean, and and that is what engineers do, right? You're doing something that hasn't been done. In general, you guys are yeah. out to a whole nother level of that definitely than the people I worked with. But uh, it it was it was frustrating. I, I also saw that the engineers were the ones that were actually making us money because they were mm-hmm. actually the contributing base. And everything else is technically is waste. I mean, IT is waste. Legal is waste. You know, all these other things that don't provide value to the end customer. That's all waste. And they yeah. did not see it that way.
1: And I have a little bit of a gross simplification that scientists are often the ones that are trying to figure out how to make something work the first time. And then engineers are the ones that are trying to figure out how to make it work reliably the next 100,000 times.
0: Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, that would be a that would be a perfect description. Definitely.
1: Well, let's jump into the thing
0: that actually started this whole conversation. Tell us about this ultrasonic clothes dryer. What's what's the story? What problem is that trying to solve and how is it doing it?
1: Would you believe that about 1% of the energy consumption in the United States actually goes to drying things? That's a lot. It is a huge amount of energy. And if you think about what it is, you know, you're going to take something, you got a load of wet clothes um, coming out of the washing machine, you're going to throw them in the dryer. So you're going to heat everything back up to a temperature to try to get the the water out of there. And then most of that heat Because that's your dryer vent. We don't try to do – particularly in a residential, we don't try to capture that heat and recycle it, run it through a heat exchanger or any of those kinds of things. Right. Um, And we waste
0: the water too.
1: And we've wasted the water as well. So there's a fair amount of of energy that goes with that. So you've got the water molecules. They like to stick to those fibers in the clothes. And what we're trying to do is to get the the water up off of those fibers into the air, evaporate. Mm. Um, So water evaporates more quickly when it's warmer. Well, what if we could be more selective about how we um, excite those water molecules, if you will, and so the, the innovation that some folks at Oak Ridge came up with involves something called a piezoelectric. Now, piezoelectric is a little bitty crystal. And the way it works is you put an electric current on it and it vibrates really, really fast, um, like in the, the megahertz to tens of megahertz range. So million, 10 million, 100 million cycles per second. And turns out that that's a, a range of vibrations. It's interesting in order to be able to excite water molecules and get them to jump off of the fiber. Well, if you get them to jump off the fiber a little bit, you get some air moving through there and now you've carried them away and they don't have a chance to stick back to the fibers.
0: Huh? So you do have to provide energy to to shaking these things up, right? Because you can't just have the, the, uh, the clothes sitting still. They have to be tumbling.
1: Um, there's a little... There's some commercialization work that's got to be done. The examples that I've seen, they're putting the fibers and moving them past the um, piezoelectric to get fairly close contact. Hmm. But, yeah, you do have to put some energy in. But the whole point is to try to put in just enough energy to kick the water molecules off of the fiber and up into the air to where they can be carried away rather than having to put so much energy into heating everything quite so hot um, and heating all of the clothes and all of those other fibers and stuff around it, as well as heating up the dryer itself, being much more selective about where you're oh, okay. putting that energy. Targeted. So, Targeted. How big are
0: these piezoelectric
1: things? The ones that I've worked with are kind of a centimeter on a side. Oh, they're tiny little things. Right. I think they've got bigger ones. It's but not – You just
0: put hundreds of these inside the dryer? Is that the idea?
1: Uh, there's a video that we can put the link in the, in the show notes for this that will explain it in a little bit more detail. They're still working how, out the details for how this works in, in a tumble dryer situation.
0: Okay, so but we're not going to find this at Sears in the next three months.
1: You're not going to find it in Sears in the next three months, no. And the first places that it'll go might be other kinds of drying operations, like, for example, um, when you make paper. You've got to drive off a bunch of water. Now you've got this great big sheet of paper that's going past something, and this kind of a application would probably work very well in that kind of an environment. How do we
0: get the the water out of out of wood? Now is it with heat?
1: Yep. Oh, okay. So that's an example of some of those expensive drying operations that happen um, in a lot of manufacturing operations.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, when I, uh, when I started talking to you about this and telling you how cool I thought it sounded, you said, that ain't nothing, Allison. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so there, are all, there are all sorts of cool things happening.
0: Yeah. So the next one is just really crazy. Let's talk about what you guys are doing in, in the energy space.
1: So the one that got me really excited a while back, one of the coolest things, was a, a, they developed a new catalyst. And um, what's a catalyst? That, so a catalyst I Speak real slow.
0: i right. I'm a mechanical engineer. I I did explain to Bruce before we started the reason I'm a mechanical engineer is cuz you had to, you were required to take less chemistry than if you were became an electrical engineer. That's one of the reasons, so
1: So a catalyst is a way that it doesn't change the amount of energy that a reaction requires, but it changes the amount of waste energy, if you will, that is consumed, um, or it can also make a reaction much more precise. Sometimes a chemical reaction can make 30 or 40 different byproducts, um, and a catalyst might help you focus that down to make just the one that you're Mm. interested in.
0: Does it also allow the, the reaction to occur at a lower temperature sometimes?
1: It all does. It often allows it to happen at all in some cases. Oh. And so this is what um, – this is an example of. So there, we talk about something called the activation energy. And that's basically how big of a hill do you have to get over in order to get through this reaction. And sometimes I might even joke about what's the activation energy to get out of bed or out of a chair. And, you know, we have a little chocolate ice cream and that might lower that activation energy a little bit. (laughs) That's a great description. I get it. So what they discovered as a catalyst is a way to take CO2, carbon dioxide, and turn it back into ethanol. So this is the reverse. So when we take and put ethanol into a a car and burn it, we're making carbon dioxide and water. So that's going to give up energy. Well, to go from CO2, carbon dioxide, back to ethanol, we've got to put energy into it. And many of the ways that we know how to do that are very – non-selective, they'll make a lot of other products besides ethanol, um, or they take a huge amount of energy, like that clothes drying example that we were talking about. If we could be very selective about how we put that energy back into the system, we put in just enough to get the CO2 into ethanol, but not a whole lot of waste. So and it's the- really
0: stupid to have to use a lot of energy to make ethanol, because the reason you're making ethanol is so that you have energy to burn.
1: Right. It could you could look at it that way, but we need to get CO two out of the atmosphere. Oh that too. Uh-huh. So th- this is one of the possible ways. We are at a point now where there is more CO two in the atmosphere now than at any time that humans have lived on the Earth. Oh wow. So the last time the CO two was at the levels that it is now were some two million years ago.
0: Huh. And 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 that change has been fairly rapid since the industrialization
1: and the onset right? of burning fossil fuels in order to make energy. So CO two is
0: one of the greenhouse gases, right?
1: CO two is one Pokes of that hole in the ozone gases. and all that. It had, doesn't have anything to do with the ozone oh, hole, does it? but it. Okay. Now that was the chlorofluorocarbons, the freons, mm. and so forth. But what it does do is it traps heat, and so this is where. 2016 was one of the warmest years on record. We had the lowest extent of um, summer sea ice in the Arctic this past summer. There has been the significant increase in oceans, um, partly as a result of water expands as it heats, partly as a result of melting. We've seen collapse of the um larson ice shelf in, in antarctica and just a whole bunch of other things that are happening and unfortunately it's gotten fairly political where some people say well i don't believe in climate change
0: and and the challenge <laughs> that, is that reminds me of when i said to oh i, I said it to Stuart steward i said i don't believe in uh in vr and he said it exists allison
1: <laughs> okay. so what to do is the political question but let, let's quit debating scientific fact
0: Right, right. I mean, we can measure it. We know what happens.
1: We can measure it. And trust me, if you can get 97% of scientists to agree on anything, <laughs> you, you can take it to the yeah. bank. Yeah, you, You've met a few of them. <laughs> so the, this catalyst is, is cool for working with ethanol because they can um, – Make this work at room temperature, and it's a reaction that's very, very easy to stop and start, which Mm. means that it it works really well with intermittent energy sources. One of the problems with solar and wind is that they're variable. Well, this is uh, something that you could consume the um, electric output from solar and wind in a way to create a liquid fuel, which is stable and transportable. So there's all sorts of interesting ramifications of this. So how do you, um, how do
0: you get CO2 to, in order to run it through this catalyst and turn it into uh, ethanol?
1: So a couple of different ways come to mind. One is that we've talked about how do you capture the CO2 when you burn fossil fuels. And so there are places that are doing that to capture the CO2. Oh, and so you then do they it talk, like
0: right at the vehicle, for example? Or right at the power plants,
1: so a, okay. a power plant burning coal, you might actually capture that CO two. A power plant burning um, natural gas, capture that CO two. <gasps>
0: okay, all right.
1: Um, it's not necessarily practical today, but you might actually just build something that funnels a bunch of air through um, and tries to capture the CO two out of it um, that way. I mean, we we do have something that does that today. It's called a tree. <laughs> Mother Nature is much more efficient at doing those kinds of things than we are. So but why don't there, we just plant more trees? Uh that would be a really good start. Okay,
0: I'm a fan of trees, per se. Okay,
1: what one of my heroes is a lady by the name of Wangari Maathai. Um, she passed away a few years ago, but part of what she was was really focusing on was the regreening of of Africa and all of the ways that deforestation caused problems an interesting lady very very well worth reading about she was i believe the first um phd woman um in the sciences out of nigeria oh wow
0: wow okay so w- where are we in this process of of uh of developing we <laughs> <laughs> they you in this process they... of developing the uh, the catalyst to, to suck the ethanol out of CO2?
1: Well, remember what I said? Scientists are the ones that figure out how to make this work the first time. <laughs> and then engineers are the ones that figure out how to make it work reliably the next 100,000 times.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: We're, we're someplace in that spectrum.
0: Okay. So we know it's possible.
1: We know it's possible. They've demonstrated it. The other neat thing about this is many, many catalysts involve fairly exotic materials like Platinum. Um, And even worse, this actually uses fairly easy to get um, based on copper. Oh, really? So it's not, it looks like if everything works, this isn't a terribly expensive or destructive thing to try to make, which also bodes well for being able to scale it up and make it usable.
0: Right, because if you need it to be made out of platinum, then we've got to go find the rare metals and that just opens a whole nother can of worms, right? It does. And Michigan's full of copper. There you go. <laughs> copper mountains, copper country up there. Indeed. So what what has to what has to happen next with this?
1: work out how to make how long does this catalyst live so again it's it's one thing to have made it the first time it's another thing to make it in large enough quantities to be useful it's one thing to run the catalyst for a day it's another thing to run the catalyst for months and years without it degrading and then working out the separation so how do you get the ethanol out how do you Make this process work as cheaply and efficiently as you can um, in order to make the economics favorable
0: okay are there, are so are there companies working with Oak Ridge now to try to develop that the 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 real engineers, not just those silly scientists
1: um my expectation is yes, but I don't have a specific knowledge of who is working. Um, with us on that specific piece. I just watch what comes out as, as the public press releases and get my jollies out of saying, yeah, what I did helped make it possible <laughs> for those scientists to do their job.
0: Yeah, yeah. So how did IT uh, help in that?
1: I wouldn't say we necessarily did anything that directly involved other than we provide the computers for them to do their work. Um, Part of what I'm trying to do is how to construct the network so that they can have their specialized computers and have them not be threatened by things like, say, WannaCrypt. (laughs) Um, It's surprising because sometimes scientific equipment runs on fairly old computers Yeah, do you guys use much
0: embedded hardware that's, you know, you can't really do anything about it?
1: We do, and we've we've set up some special network enclaves to be able to host that kind of equipment and both protect it from the rest of the lab and protect the rest of the lab from it. So do you do air-gapped networks for those? They're not. We do have some that are air-gapped, but more often they're very carefully controlled with firewalls um, and other kinds of things to be very selective about the traffic that we let through.
0: That's interesting. I, I'm thinking a lot about as as WannaCrypt has come through that I hear people blaming the IT people for it. You know, they should have ABC whatever. And in my experience, the the people that I worked with and worked for me in particular on, on networks and, and uh and and all of the work to do with IT was that they would make the recommendations but they wouldn't be funded properly or they wouldn't be given the priority um you know, just like to set up backups, sometimes was like, well, you know, that would be disruptive or, well, we've got this thing. It's been working for a long time. I'm sure it's fine. You know, we can't possibly Mm -hmm. shut that down for, you know, 48 hours because this horrible thing would happen if we did that. And it's like, well, yeah, how bad is it going to be if that data is gone? You know,
1: those are exactly issues. The other one is we're constantly making decisions about which of the several problems we're facing is the one that we're going to tackle today. Yeah. Some, yeah, sure. Some, sure. You now, are we going to deal with that particular patch or this other situation or how do we uh, figure out a way to make this particular um, oddball piece of equipment work?
0: Yeah. You know, right, the, the, right.
1: They're all challenges.
0: Yeah. No, um, when Steve was working as a program manager, one of the things they would do is is risk analysis, and they would look at a couple of different factors. One would be what is the impact if this failure does happen, and the other would be the probability of that risk happening. Yep, And so – it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing in a lot of these cases, it's like, well, what are the chances that the NSA is going to lose their data? They're going to find this, this zero day exploit. Somebody's going to write it and it's going to hit my computer. Okay. It's 0.001%. But if they do, people die. Cause I'm running a hospital network. Well, okay, maybe we'll do that one. You know, where do you, where do you build those trade-offs?
1: And, and we do risk assessments on a very regular basis. Um, And it's, How formal do we get in doing a risk assessment? We've defined some firewall exceptions, for example, that this particular kind of firewall exception is a CISO exception. We have to do a formal documented risk assessment that has to get signed off by the chief information security officer before we're going to let this particular kind of firewall exception go through. But these others, yeah, this is something we know about, and we can follow a more routine pattern.
0: So CISO is the Chief Information Security Officer? Yep. Oh, that's interesting. So you've got guidelines of, of when you have to engage that person versus not having to engage
1: them? We do. And sometimes you just have to apply wetware to say, where does this problem need to fall in that spectrum? The other things that you can look at in that risk assessment are, if this risk event happens, how quickly can I detect it?
0: Oh,
1: And what is my ability to mitigate the risk? Because, you know, there's this horrible risk of comets slamming into the Earth. Mm -hmm. Okay, My ability to mitigate that risk is zero. So it it, it falls out of my list of things that I worry about.
0: (laughs) Right. You can put your head in the sand on that one. But uh, we actually had Amy Mainzer from JPL talking about that. And it's her job to worry about that one.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Another person that I follow.
0: Oh yeah, Amy's the best. Um, you know, it's um, oh shoot, you just said something. I was going to tell you something. Bart talked about. Oh, Bart talked in in the security bit segment that came out in yesterday's show. He talked about the way they found the flaw in WannaCrypt that allowed them to stop it, and it was it yeah. was it was fascinating. And it, and it gets back to what you were saying: your ability to detect it is the flaw was uh, detected because the people who wrote the malware had put in something that would cause it to go dormant if it was in a lab environment. Yep. So, or at if, least that's if,
1: what we presume.
0: Um, no, this is, this is how they were able to figure out how to stop it. So I'm going to do a poor job of it. You guys should really go listen to Bart explain it. But if, if the cat and mouse game he talked about was they, they put something in the code that said, if, uh, if I, ask for an ip address from a domain i know doesn't exist and i get a and i get a resolution from the domain name server if that resolves then i know i'm in a lab environment because if i was on the outside where i want to be then i would never get a resolution because that ip that that domain name doesn't exist but they had hard coded the domain name they they were searching for so when the when the malware uh or when the uh, security researcher found this, he said, well, I wonder what's going to happen, or he or she, I don't know if it's he or she. He. Is, okay. He went out and he registered that domain, which caused it to resolve. Wait, how does it, which caused it to stop. Right. It went dormant because it, it did resolve.
1: He registered the domain and put something there. Now, my point is we we absolutely do understand that behavior. It's a subtle thing. We're making a supposition about the reason That they um they chose it's a it's certainly plausible. Okay, yeah, yeah, I I suppose. But but they didn't put that in comments in there. Yeah, the unfortunate (laughs) story is (laughs) that security researcher was somebody who wanted to remain private, and unfortunately, the tabloids doxed him.
0: I heard about that, and he's getting harassed.
1: He is absolutely, and so it's it's very much one of these "let no good deed go unpunished" situations.
0: That makes me really angry. Yeah, I also heard he was given some money. He was ge- given some money by somebody for having found this, and he donated half of it to
1: charity. That is consistent with my understanding. Yeah. I scanned through some of the order. It was on the order of I think ten thousand dollars. Wow. So clearly a class individual, and I've I've read his article about what was going through his mind when he discovered it, and the sort of oh. Happenstance. It took him a while to figure out that he had inadvertently created the kill switch.
0: Yeah, yeah. That that was kind of interesting that he that he successfully did that. Yeah. Well, I assume this is the kind of story you follow fairly closely.
1: I do. Um, are folks that are are more engaged in cybersecurity or would? much more directly engaged with that. I tend to get more involved in the long-range strategic questions. Um, the cybersecurity folks are the ones much more expert in the immediate tactical. And they're they're teaching me how to think like an attacker, which is a useful thing for somebody in my position. Hmm. So that as I'm thinking about designing systems, I'm thinking about how would we attack that system.
0: Oh, interesting. So- yeah. I, I am fascinated by that part of science, and it seems like – I don't know if you call that science – but uh, computer science is looking at the, the threats and how you discover them and, and that if I were to talk to a kid going to college, what, what should I go into? Computer security would be the first thing I would say. I mean that's <laughs> not going to get all figured out by the time they get out of school in four years.
1: But I think part of what's cool in what Bart is teaching in his Chit Chat Across the Pond and Programming by Stealth, you guys, you've you just recently gotten into some of the testing. And so he started you with what we call happy path testing, which is, yeah, I put in the right stuff and it should all work. But he's also started you talking about testing this shouldn't work. Mm. And so often, a lot of the problems come up because all that people do is a happy path test.
0: (laughs) I never heard it called that, happy path test.
1: Because everything, you're just walking along and it's all roses and, and beautiful. And you don't get into the thorns or all of the messy details. And there's a certain amount of designing things, which is thinking about, what are the nasty things that somebody could try doing? Or what are just the dumb things that, you know... Or at least look dumb to me, but made perfect sense to somebody else because they don't think the same way I do. How do you test all of those?
0: Yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I, I find that also fascinating because I'm on two ends of the spectrum on this. I'm the worst person to write the test code because I, I assume that anything I've written is perfect. I have this, it's like when I, when I write, when I read somebody else's content, I can see a typo. If the paper is upside down and away and three feet away from me, I can spot a typo in the text. But if Uh I typed it, I can't see it at all. I can look right at it. I can even read it out loud and I can't see the typo. And I think it's like a a, a vanity thing or something that I think if I wrote it it must be perfect. So I'm, I but I'm really good at the other end of the spectrum was if you wrote the code, I am going to find that bug. I'm going to push some button, I'm going to do some you know, the thing I I did a big rant on yesterday's show all about all of the bugs I've been finding in things and I keep confirming uh-huh. them with the vendors and they're going, "Yep, yep, yep, you found it." I shouldn't be debugging Mac OS, for crying out loud, somebody smarter than me should have tested these things that just don't work.
1: And that's that's the beauty of things like pair programming. You and I can write something together and we're going to wind up with a better product than either one of us can come up with individually.
0: Yeah, Bart has talked about that, and and I find that so useful. A lot of times, if I'm stuck, that's that definitely works better. As if I can talk it through with somebody. Sometimes I'll go into Steve and say, "Okay, Steve, you're not going to understand what I'm talking about, but I want to. I need to talk this through." And about three
1: sentences in, I'll go, "Oh, okay." Yeah, there's a Dilbert for that. It's called rubber ducking. It. Oh, really? Yeah. Explain your problem to a rubber duck.
0: <laughs> well, I actually have a rubber duck in the other room. I could try that. <laughs> well this has been fantastic I, I knew this would be fun I was uh, I was a little overwhelmed when when Bruce first sent the show notes if you've not followed everything he said he's got four pages of written show notes here but it worked perfectly I knew exactly where we were going and this is uh this has been a lot of fun I, I, I love the work you guys are doing and if you want to come back and tell us about anything cool you you see get done there at uh, Oak Ridge I'd love to hear about it
1: Mm, I, I think uh, I'll give a tease. Sometime we should come back and talk about phenology. Not phrenology and not phonology, but phenology.
0: Okay. Are you going to tell us what that is or that's for next time?
1: But It's the study of the life cycle events in plants and animals. When do flowers bloom? When do leaves drop? There's a, an interesting citizen science project out there called the USA National Phenology Network, usanpn.org. Okay, we better tease it there. <laughs> we'll tease it there.
0: All right, Bruce, uh, do you want to tell people your Twitter, Twitter handle so that uh, they can follow you?
1: Sure. I go by use the data. Uh, I don't post that much. Um, I'm using it more for information, but I will certainly retweet things in the area of politics, cybersecurity, information security, uh, and those kinds of things. Oh. Um
0: and I love the title, Use the Data. That's just that you are so my people.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's part of why I've enjoyed listening to you for all these years.
0: Oh, great. Well, oh, One last question. How, do you like Excel?
1: I love it and I hate it. Okay. Well, we'll, <laughs> I, can, I can do all sorts of things with it, but so many people use it as a data management tool. And it's a terrible data management tool.
0: Okay. So when, when used uh, with Honor, Excel is a great tool.
1: It is a useful tool.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, thanks a lot, Bruce. I really appreciate you coming on the show.
1: Great. Thanks.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. We are now supported by Patreon. So if you go over to podfeet.com slash Patreon, you can pledge your support to the show in weekly installments. If you don't have money to spare, I understand that. And it would be great if you used our Amazon affiliate links when you buy things on Amazon anyway, and a little bit of money goes to help the show. I love feedback. So please send me email at allison at podfeed.com. And you can join in our Facebook group over at podfee.com slash Facebook and our community at podfee.com slash Google+. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.